I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shetta Paxton. And we are the, the Movie, Movie Lovers. Lovers. Welcome to, to the official podcast of the Gibson Review. In each episode, we first focus on our week in review, move on to the main event, which is either a topic of discussion or a main review, and then we cap it all off with film faves. Our list of our favorite movies of a particular topic. Often, we're counting back through time. This week, our main review is... Blade Runner 2049. And our film faves topic is... The 2006 films. That's right. So, let's get right to it, shall we? First off, let's focus on the weekend review. Yes. We didn't really have a lot of films that we watched by ourselves this week, did we? No, it's actually quite unusual week in that sense, but we did have, actually, for once, a few movies that we watched together. So let's go through our week in review, shall we? Yes. Why don't we start with The Big Sick, which is available to rent. On Amazon, you're correct, yes. Uh, so this has been one of my most anticipated movies of the year, uh, certainly of the summer, and it took us quite a while to get around to it. I think it's been available to rent on Amazon for a couple weeks, if not a month. This is the romantic comedy starring Kumail Nanjiani and Zoe Kazan. Kumail Nanjiani plays essentially himself, a Pakistani comedian who's torn between the traditions of his Pakistani family and the lifestyle he wants to live as an American. Part of that includes the dating life. Pakistani tradition is to be match made uh, from Pakistani to Pakistani. Whereas Kumail, he would rather date who he wants to date. And he does fall in love with a white girl played by Zoe Kazan. And it, the film is about not only what happens when with that tension between family and the heart, but also something significant happens with the relationship. That won't spoil because it kind of happens like halfway through the movie. Yeah? So what did you think of the film? I feel like it wasn't so much a push and pull between the heart and family traditions. I feel like, you know, he states very clearly that, you know, that culture religiously does not resonate with him and that is why right. he's not practicing it and that but whole he, lifestyle doesn't seem to resonate with him too he wants his family yeah he doesn't want to lose his family right but he doesn't necessarily want to do all the things that culturally make you a pakistani right which i thought was very interesting i mean that's one way a first generation american could go they may not resonate with the culture their parents were integrated in mm -hmm. because they're put in this different culture. So they're going to, you know, be influenced by that. And I completely yeah. understand where he's coming from. Mm -hmm. So what did you Did you like the movie? I very much liked this movie. And it was one of those romance films where I couldn't talk afterwards about it, mm. much like how it was for me in Band-Aid because... There was so much truth in it. And then mm. I found out that it's a true story based right. on a true story. Yeah. So if you guys are into true story films, 
films that are based on true, true stories, go ahead and check it out. Yeah, I would say it's actually more accurately inspired by real-life events because yes. it does take a different trajectory than real-life events did. That would be between Kumail Nanjiani and I think the co-writer of the film, who uh, ended up being his wife. Oh, that's fun that they got yeah. to work on it together. That yeah, makes me even I more excited. So, so I, I really like this movie quite a bit. I thought, really briefly, I'll say that cool, uh, Kumail really sells the film. I think even more so Holly Hunter and Ray Romano, who star as Zoe Kazan's parents. Oh my god, I love are them. Great in the film. I don't want to give away too much, but I do think the way the family dynamic is depicted is really well done and adds a great nuance to the the story. I do think my only issue with the film is there is a fight. Uh, it happens in the film, and I do think... Between the parents? No, between the main characters. And I do think she ultimately makes a much bigger deal of what the fight is about. I don't think, like, the so direction... Yeah, the direction it goes. Like, she ends up saying, you know, when I look at you, my heart aches and all that sort of stuff. I don't think the reaction is equal to the event in hindsight, and um, I think that that is one thing that could have been improved if there was if there was something a little bit more a little more harmful. I think like you know she definitely lacks a certain degree of understanding. He says something that isn't helpful in the situation, but I just felt like that's the one. If there was a flaw in the film, that's the one flaw. I see where you're coming from, but I disagree. You thought it was. It, you thought it was equal? I thought it made sense to me. Was there any flaws you saw in the movie? No, I felt like it was all pretty true. I felt like, you know, if, if X happens, Y is going to happen. And I didn't feel like anything was out of balance. Okay. Very so. good. So that was The Big Sick Then. Uh, sounds like uh, we both strongly recommend it. And Shanna was uh, a much bigger fan even. Our next film that we got to see together was Battle of the Sexes. It finally came to our area. This is starring Emma Stone and Steve Carell. Emma Stone is Billie Jean King, the famous tennis player. And Steve Carell is... Bobby Riggs. So, to back up a little bit, if you've listened to past episodes, you may recall this was a movie that not only were we looking forward to as per our fall movie preview... But we were hoping to review previously, but the film had a very limited release and it only just this past weekend expanded into our area. So uh, this past weekend being a time of recording. <clears throat> so we finally caught up with it. And for those who don't know, it is about a tennis match in 1973 between Bobby Riggs and Billie Jean King. That was built up and hyped up to be this event of man versus woman. Who is superior? Who is better on yeah, which, the tennis court or in athletic genre in... <laughs> genre? It's not a movie. I mean, I don't, <laughs> in who athletic is ability. stronger in that? 
Yes. Right. Although physically, although Billie Jean King apparently never argued women were better. They she just argued they were as good and therefore deserve to be paid just as well. Yeah, I think you're skipping. Although that is the main event that is being built up to in this film. Yeah. You are also seeing something else happen in the beginning where prize money for men is more than it is yeah. for women. And what's interesting is it's that same archaic argument of, well, they have families to support. Well, so do the women. I mean, mm. they popped out the children. So, you You're know, talking about a particular statement a character makes. Yes, having a $1,500 prize for women and a $70,000 prize for men, I think that's what it was. Am no, you're 7, very, 000. very wrong. It was more like 15000 for men and one, yeah, something like that. It's still completely and utterly ridiculous. Of course, absolutely. It was a beautiful display of women's liberation and follow-through, so go ahead and watch that one. I would say that is a very good movie. I think Emma Stone gets more opportunity, a little bit more opportunity to shine than Steve Carell, although Steve Carell, I think, does a great job as uh, Bobby Riggs. Now, back up a little bit for me. This was before my time. You're you're also not from the States, so you didn't know anything about this. So this whole thing was kind of a learning experience for both of us, learning about these events. And as such, uh, for me, I wish the film did give a little bit more context about what was going on in the country. It kind of it kind of acts like the events in this movie didn't happen 45 years ago. It acts like the events of this movie happened a few years ago in the sense that if it's about uh, something that happened a few years ago, it would feel like it's ne- necessary to give context, historical context. It would assume the audience knows about the events and what's going on. That is not the case in this uh, circumstance. This event happened, you know, 45 years ago, decades ago. And so I feel like the movie could have benefited from giving the audience a little bit more context to understand why this was, why people even reacted to the event, why it was even necessary. Instead, you just get a couple key characters being the mouthpieces. And for all you know, they're just... They're just dicks, <laughs> you know. Uh, also, for me, Bobby Riggs was, while nuanced, because you see his family life, as well as his public persona, I feel like his motivations for really strongly pursuing this match were a little fuzzy. I wasn't sure if he was really doing it just for money to help himself out, or if he really believed the things that he was saying publicly. You get one conversation with a group of guys, you know, where he basically is dismissive of Billie Jean. Why does she, why does she want more money? You know what? Isn't she grateful enough? But you don't see that thought process carried through the rest of the movie in private. So I wish that it was a little more f- clear on Bobby Riggs' perspective and that those are the only issues i have that i think keep the movie from being a great film as is it's definitely an enjoyable film and very good film i would i would definitely recommend on its own merits i do agree that there isn't much context being given about that time it's very subtle though there's very small clues yeah and you have to 
sort of be educated on a certain level to know what was happening back then so that you can see those clues. Because if you have no idea what was happening, then you're not going to know. Right. I would, uh, yeah. So I agree with you there. But I do think it's a great film to watch. Excellent. So let's let's talk about The Bad Batch next, shall oh, we? Oh, the cannibal film with sexy-ass man who's going to be Aquaman. Yeah. He was Game of Thrones in the first season. I mean, he was it. Anyway. Okay, so are you able to talk about the movie, or are you just going to trip over yourself over Jason Momoa? I just think it's it's good to acknowledge the man. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, tell us your thoughts on The Bad Batch. I will give you guys a bit of trivia. There's a South African song in there. Don't look up what the words mean. It's just terribly disgusting, but it's wonderfully rebellious, and it kind of puts you in this realm of forbidden, rightly so, things to do, like eat people. And I just felt like it was really beautifully shot. There's fantastic cinematography, fantastic framing of the image happening. I thought that the lead actress, I really enjoyed Suki Waterhouse. Her performance and the way she subtly shows through expressions what is actually happening in her mind being a victim of cannibalism. And when she kind of breaks away from that, which is not a spoiler because you see that revealed in the film, I just thought was beautiful and very empowering. So to clarify one of the things that Shannon's saying, because we haven't even given the premise of the film, it starts out with a main character being introduced. She gets released from some sort of a prison. It's some sort of a dystopian future. She walks, literally is able to walk out of the country where uh, she's captured by cannibals who eat one of her arms and one of her legs. So that's how she's able to survive cannibalism. <laughs> and she does, she does escape. Well, and amongst all of this, nothing is spelt out for you except for the cannibalism. There's also something of occult nature happening. There's this desperateness in this world. Everybody seems to be high mm. most of the time. So... It's a very interesting, slow-moving film. So you, you recommend the movie? You're, you I like recommend it. I think it really makes you think. Okay, so this is a movie where in twenty the first 20 minutes, the main character has her arm and leg chopped off and is, is eaten. She has to escape cannibals, and one of which is Jason Momoa. And then you have uh, Jim Carrey incognito as a, a drifter who's almost speechless, and you have a cult who, I don't know, they're survivors. Uh, that's where the name of the, the title, the name of the movie comes from, The Bad Batch. That's what they call themselves. I guess they take drugs and stuff. This movie sounds bonkers, right? It so kind you'd of think, is. You'd think it would be a really great time and, a, and a, a one hell of a B-movie. I thought the movie was, while watchable, Quite vanilla, very, very bland, and uh, for a movie with such a bonkers premise. And while I was looking forward to this movie, I think, I think we listed it as one of our most anticipated movies of the summer. It took us a while to get to it, but I, I was fairly disappointed in it. It just kind of was. And I expected a lot, a lot more. I, I, I didn't enjoy it quite as much as you. But Keanu Reeves and Jim Carrey are unrecognizable, practically, in this movie. It's kind of fun to try to keep your eye out for them. 
Yeah, good luck finding them. Well, Jim Carrey, I didn't even know that that was him. Yeah, I had to actually tell you three quarters of the way. Yeah, when you said he was in there, I was like, but bloody where? Yeah. (laughs) Where was he? Yeah. Anyway, do you have any other thoughts on The Bad Batch? Oh, no. All right, let's quickly move on to score the... Oh my gosh, this was great. I forgot that we watched this. So again, this movie's called Score the... Music documentary or something like that. Film music Film music documentary, yeah. It has got Hans Zimmer in there. It's got John Williams. So to, uh, again, share what the premise of the movie is, it's basically a documentary about film scores and about film composers and about the significance uh, scores have to films. And it also looks a little bit at the evolution of film scores, how, Mm. you know... It went from one style to another and where it's at right now. Right, yeah. There are key contributors that it points to as, as ones who advanced film score another step forward. Uh, John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith, even Hans Zimmer to an extent. So what did you think of this documentary? I thoroughly enjoyed this documentary. I am a big fan of film composers. And I just... There's one part where they try to show you how much music has an effect on a film. And what they did was they took a piece of Star Wars music out of the film and just give you that to listen to. And when I heard it, I was like, oh my God, of of course there's music in Star Wars. I always see it as this whole entity. I never see it as this, uh, there's a separate piece here. There's cinematography there. There's, acting there. I don't see that with Star Wars. I just see it as this whole big ginormous thing that is this living being (laughs) that can't be separated or dissected. And then when they show music from E.T., I don't even know that film very well. I haven't watched it in years. But when it shows the music of when E.T. is leaving the planet, and that's not a spoiler. You guys should have watched that. I looked at you, and then I looked at the the documentary and I just burst into tears because that is how powerful music is. And I, I just felt like they really took apart what music is in Mm. film and were able to show us what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They, they even look at the process uh, for a little while in the film. I think, it could have been a, a few minutes longer, but... And oh, yeah, I would have taken another hour. <laughs> it's certainly not a documentary that tries to do anything creative or new with documentary medium. But if you are a fan of film scores, if you can identify John Williams' scores easily, and uh, you can name film composers you know, off the top of your head, then you'll probably enjoy this film quite a bit. It it features, you know, talking heads of many film composers uh, who've huge, huge uh, contributors to film over the past 60 years. So it's definitely worth checking out, and that's available to rent on Amazon. Okay, are we ready? I think we're ready. All right, it's time to dive in to the main event, which is our review of Blade Runner 
crystallization was built off the back of a disposable workforce. But I can only make so many. Shh. Happy birthday. There is an order to things. That's what we do here. We keep order. The world is built on a wall that separates kind. Tell either side there's no wall. You bought a war. Wasn't that trailer awesome? That was from the trailer to Blade Runner 2049. All right. So, with our main reviews, what we like to do is we like to talk about the good, what we liked about a movie. Then we move to the bad, what we didn't like about a movie, which opens us up to general discussion before moving into spoilers and final thoughts. Okay? So... With that, Blade Runner 2049, just really briefly, is the sequel to the 1982 film starring Harrison Ford. This film stars Ryan Gosling, and whereas the original film was directed by Ridley Scott, this film is directed by Denis Villeneuve of Arrival and Prisoners and Sicario. Shanna. Oh, I'm very proud of that man. What <laughs> did you like about Blade Runner 2049? There was a lot going on here cinematically. Mm. I was incredibly stimulated by the visuals. There were techniques in there that I never thought you could even do with lighting. Mm. And it was a beautiful contrast to the original. I mean, to the first yeah, the original. Blade Runner. Yeah. Whereas everything is very, very dark in there, and I appreciate what they're doing. And in this 2049 one, the sequel, everything is v- starts off very light. So it's this huge contrast to mm. the original, which I really appreciated. I feel like if you're going to have a sequel that was so important to people who use light as their tool of expression like you need to do something that's going to bring you into back into that world but also make you realize that it's different Hmm. it sounds like you're a big fan of roger deakins work who is the uh cinematographer of this film roger deakins is actually practically a legend at this point as a cinematographer For those of you who don't know, Roger has done work on such films as The Shawshank Redemption, No Country for Old Men, Skyfall, A Beautiful Mind. Sicario. Yes, he's he's done, I think, 
at least half of Denis Villeneuve's films. Uh, surprisingly, he didn't do Arrival, though. He's done a lot of Coen Brothers films as well. So, um, Ooh, Fargo as well. Yeah. So, yeah, he's he does not disappoint in this film. I agree with you. The lighting is so phenomenal in this film. When they are in the pyramid structure, the light is moving to mimic natural sunlight, and I thought that was just a beautiful way of fulfilling a craving that would occur for humans or even replicants uh, in a post-apocalyptic world where there is no sun. It becomes hypnotic and intoxicating. And all this light, all the rest of the light, that is the only place, that is the only place where natural light is being mimicked. And in the rest of the film, it's all this highly saturated and obnoxious, huge artificial light and it really does work because that's the only source of light in that world. I thought Ryan Gosling's performance was amazing. The emotions he goes through out this film is just so well done. I love it when actors are in incredible pain um, emotionally. And I thought there was a really fun scene in Vegas. It was their sort of mm. Vegas equivalent. And it was very entertaining. What did you like about this film? Well, my goodness. So, taking a step back, we recently talked about the original film on a previous Movie Lovers episode. And while we both appreciated Blade Runner for what it was and its influences on the next 20 years in sci-fi, we were both rather cool on it in terms of, in terms of how much we loved the film. Right? We appreciate it more than anything else. I think Blade Runner 2049 is even better than the original Blade Runner. And I, and I, I think I can confidently say that without being blasphemous as a film lover. There's some details that I can't really talk about until spoilers. The trailers do a really good job of avoiding spoilers or avoiding details about the story. For the most part, I will say that right off the bat, though, whereas the original film was a little coy about whether or not the main character was a replicant, in this film, they make it very clear the main character is a replicant. There's a lot more that, that, to the story that goes along with that, but Ryan Gosling ended up being a really great new main character. He, I, I'm totally with you on his performance. I think the cast all over is top-notch. I don't think there's a single weak link in the entire cast list. No, all acting was really great. Most especially, I think, shout-outs to Ana de Armas, who plays a hologram, essentially, named Joy, and Sylvia Hooks, who is one of the primary villains of the film. I, I, I'm looking at her IMDb profile right now, and she's not even recognizable. She does not look like her character at all, from what I can see. So I really like the cast. I, I'm with you on the cinematography. It's spectacular. The visuals in this film, just like the, the past film, are remarkable. However, it's got like... I, I couldn't help but think about movies like Arrival, other Denis Villeneuve films, Sicario. It has this, this 
the sense to it. That's I don't know if austerity is the right word, but it is very, very, like, it feels like it's in the same family visually to these other movies that Denis Villeneuve have directed, and they're always remarkable visually. Like, you get just incredible shots in these films, and this film is definitely no exception to that. There's a sort of... If you know what to look for, you can see an old-school way of teaching with compositions Mm. and the framing, the dynamic film shots that go from background to foreground, etc. There is even a shot that is in the beginning of the film that is repeated at the near the end of the film to kind of tie everything in. So there's all this sort of symbolic messaging happening through the cinematography, and you just mm. don't see that very often mm. or often enough. Yeah, it, it's pretty great. And then on top of that... You know, so the performances are great. The, the the visuals, the cinematography, the visual effects, the cinematography, but also the score. I could swear the score was by Johan Johansson. It has a very similar style to that of Sicario's score and that of Arrival's score. And it turns out I was dead wrong. It's actually co-composed by Hans Zimmer. And it is a fantastic score. I think it does play a little bit on the themes of the original film, but it has a spareness to it, but is also somewhat haunting. I was really taken by the score in this film as well. Yeah, it doesn't take you out of the film. No. It keeps you there. So, <laughs> in terms of what was good about the film, I, got, I, I, I hate to labor a few points, but one of them I have to labor is the visual effects remarkable visual effects. I mean, there are scenes where I am wondering how did they do that? You know, not being, you know, someone who's in the know on on photography or computer effects, like you might be, Shanna. Especially, there is a scene, I don't even know if I can describe it, but there is a scene where one character is layered over another character, let's say, and the two characters are interacting with a third character and you could see like they are being very careful to be intimate without touching each other and it's just I don't know I was just jaw-dropping honestly I, I, I was really impressed I cannot wait for this to come out on DVD and mm. they better have a ton of special features because if they don't, I'm going to like riot. Yeah, and so Ana de Armas is actually one of the standouts for me for sure in the film. She, she plays a character named Joy who is, let's say, Ryan Gosling's one friend. Not only do I feel like she gives a really interesting performance. This is a this is an actress I, I haven't previously seen before. She was in the film Knock Knock with Keanu Reeves, Hands of Stone, and War Dogs, apparently with Jonah Hill. I haven't seen those films, but I really, really liked her in this film. And also, Mackenzie Davis. She plays a character named Mariette, who ends up being more than she appears. 
You're rolling your eyes at me. I'm keeping my mouth shut till we get to spoilers. Yeah, yeah. It's it's hard, but I, I just wanted to give like the shout outs. The women in this film are spectacular. They they are really fascinating characters, some stronger than others, but I don't think you could really make I don't think there's like much that you could give a side sideways glance to like maybe in the past in the pre original film anyway i i feel like I'm, I'm i'm rambling a little bit but i think this is a spectacular film and i very comfortably place this right now as the best film of the year what was the bad about the movie what did you know okay like? here we go so well to be sticking with being vague you say that these women in this film are fascinating and I don't think that they were written in a way that gives them a lot of strength. I feel that their strength is coming from certain situations. I do not feel like these women had big enough roles in this film. Are I you feel kidding? Really? I will talk about this later, sir. But I feel like they only scratched the surface with these female characters. All three, four of them? Yeah. Wow. They could have been so much more. And wow. I'll talk about that later. And that's probably about the only thing that I did not like about this film. Really? Which I'll get into in spoilers. I don't want to spoil anything for anyone. Wow, I'm, I'm really, really surprised to hear that. I, I'm going to be curious to hear more of your thoughts on that. Was there any issues I had with the film? Well... Not really. I thought it's one of those movies where I thought while watching it, I had an issue with it. But then as the plot unfolds, it completely undoes that issue that I had with it. And it proves it makes me the fool. It proves me wrong about something. So I think the script is, is really well written and actually more fascinating. I think the, it's more fascinating than the original film script and story. I'm trying to talk about what I didn't like about the movie. I'm not doing a very good job because I, I honestly have a hard time finding anything that is lacking. You know, is, did I get emotionally caught up and want to cry or anything? Um, you know, did I have emotional responses to the film more than the previous film? I don't, I don't know. I've been wrestling with that question and thinking about, like, what is it that this film has that the other film lacked for me. I'm really not sure what that is. Maybe I did connect more with these characters. I don't know. I think this film was more emotional. The previous film was not. You do think it's more emotional? Yeah. I mean, when you do see emotion in the replicants in the previous film, it's it's kind of like tantrum-y and rebellious teenage and... I mean, if you really break it down to its simplest form, that's mm. all it is. Mm. It isn't a fight for being seen as human. It isn't a fight for equality. It's just a sort of surface, hey, you're not treating us as equals. Hmm. I, I don't know if I would agree with that necessarily, but I would agree if you're saying that we connect more with these characters than the previous set of characters. Especially Ryan Gosling's character. Uh, I feel like he brings something more 
to the film, oddly enough, than Harrison Ford did in the original as Deckard. And maybe that's blasphemous to say, but I don't necessarily think that Harrison Ford... I, I feel like he was being distant. There's an emotional distance or lack thereof in the original film that you don't necessarily get with Ryan's performance. I feel like in this film, they're trying to, replicants are trying to break into their humanity. And what's more human than emotions? A soul, maybe. Spoiler, maybe. (laughs) Shut my mouth. (laughs) So do you think the good outweighs the bad in this film? Yes, I, I do. Even you think that's remotely a question? I think this is a, a beautiful masterpiece. However, I do have reservations on female characters in this. She used the M word, people. Masterpiece. I'm always reluctant to use that word because that's like... And I'm talking visually. <laughs> it's a visual masterpiece, yeah. Mm. I, I think this is a great film. There is way more positive than negative. This film, unfortunately, my God, okay. So while this movie was the number one movie at the box office for its opening weekend, it only made $30 million, $32 million, I think. Its budget is $150 million. This is the kind of film that you need to go see. I do recommend, highly, if your memory is a little fuzzy, refresh your memory, check out the original Blade Runner, but then quickly go out and see this film. It needs your support. It is the kind of movie that should be doing well. This is kind of the first time Jeff's kind of asking listeners to go out there and support it. Yeah, well, I think this is the first film this year that actually needs the support and is just justifiably uh, justifies that, that, that call to action, so to speak. Not very many movies do. But I think this movie is one, for sure. Shall we move into spoilers, or do you have more thoughts to share? I would love to move into spoilers, because obviously that's what I need to do. You're chomping <laughs> at the bit. That's where I need to go. Okay. All right, so spoilers. Warning. Warning. <laughs> you guys get the gist of our thoughts. If you haven't seen the movie, go see it. Otherwise, if you have seen the movie, stick around for spoilers for Blade Runner 2049, starting... Now. Okay, so All right. I'm going to go ahead and just... <laughs> this is the Shanna section. <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and dive in and get it out of the way. So here's the problem I had with this film in all its spoiler glory. When we go to Kay's home and I hear someone talking about how dinner was unintentionally ruined... And then see her come out dressed as a 1950s housewife. I got chills down my spine. And I don't mean in, ooh, how pretty. I mean in a, oh, fuck. That's where we're going. We notice that she is only able to move within the confines of the projector's axle set up within the apartment. I got the impression of a woman's places in the kitchen, in the home, serving her partner. She's not a friend. I I know you were being vague for, for other listeners, but she's not a friend. He does love her. He subtly shows that he does want her to experience life, raindrops, be a physical here and now presence. 
But let's be honest, it's a sci-fi way of objectifying women because that's all she is. She supports him, yes, but she cannot stand on her own. She is a strong support. Now, we're not going to stop there. We're going to carry on. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to the other characters in a minute here. I, I would say, no, she's not the strongest character, but I think your characterization is a little off. She is not objectified. You don't see him sexualizing her or, or bringing her out. Uh, no, 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 it's no, not him. Point. It's not him. It's the world she's in. I, I don't agree with that point at all. We see, we are introduced to her through Kay's eyes. It, it is a very subjective uh, introduction. And our time with her is very subjective. And, yeah, while the technology initially that... Uh, was available was very limiting and did confine her to the home he he got technology to free her from the home and make it so she could go with him wherever and i don't think if he felt that she was just this object to be submissive and stay in the house and and all these all these chauvinistic things that you're suggesting, I don't think the character would have done that. He even sort of presented it as a uh, anniversary gift. So yes, there is suggestions that he actually has feelings for this character. He's doing something in a way he feels for her to free her so she can leave their home and be able to experience outside that and mostly though my comments about the characters really more towards the performance that the actress gives i really appreciate the the performance i thought it was a really good really well acted by bayana and i am not disagreeing with your comment on performance i agree that every actor and actress in this film does a fantastic performance. However, the way all these women are written, which I will get to because I'm going one by one, could have been better. We could have had a main lead female. We could have had a strongly written, more than one dimensional female character. All of them could have been more than one dimension. Do, do we have to, though? What do you mean, do we have to? Just... Yeah, that's the angry feminist coming out. Here she comes. You're saying that a female character cannot be just a supporting character. Why why can't the characters just be supporting characters? Why do they have to essentially be lead multidimensional characters? Why do all the female characters in this film have to be supporting? None of them are main. None of them are standalone. So... Uh, you could argue that only one character is the main character in the whole film. Sure, but we have other men in this film. Yeah. That seem to be more than one dimension. Mm, I would say only one character, maybe. You would say only Ryan Gosling is the one that is more than a dimension? He, well, especially him. He's the main character. But maybe you can make an argument that that's also true of Deckard, but no one else. 
I am upset, personally, because although this is a fantastic visual masterpiece, mm-hmm. there aren't fantastic female characters. I disagree. Wonderful I th- performances. I think Lieutenant, uh, Robin Wright as the lieutenant is a very strong character. I mean, she's a character in charge. She's, she is Kay's superior. She's very commanding. She refuses to show weakness, even when she is being forced to be weak. We're in spoilers, so there's a scene where she gets killed. And before she's killed, she is tortured, in a way. And she refuses to show weakness while she's being tortured. You also notice in this film Mm -hmm. that many of these females are pitted against each other. So although Robin Wright, yes, she has... Two. Which two are you thinking? Robin Wright and Love? Yeah. There is also Joy and Mariette that are pitted against each other. And I don't mean like... They're not pitted against each other. Okay, maybe that's not the right description. But they do break... The one does break the other one down. I'm not remembering what you're talking about. So when... I don't want to jump around too much. I have a structure in place. I'll come back to this. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Robin Wright, although strong in her leadership, and although she is not one I would want to mess with, Mm -hmm. that's great to see. Mm -hmm. It is a little stereotypical because she comes off as a bitch. I'm just a little tired of seeing that. I had no problems with that character whatsoever. Okay. That's great. Now, let's move to love. She's also referred to as Angel, and it's like she's the daughter of a psycho criminal dad gone wrong. And daddy was a killer, and daughter had to adapt to daddy's ways and means, because if she didn't, she would be under the chopping block herself, which is the case. He I disposes of He disposes of that one woman that I think she perfect. was created to be the way she is. Okay, but would it, wouldn't it have been better if her character perhaps wanted to protect the child? You know, something else came into being. No, I don't think that would have been better. That's the opposite of what her mission is. I'm just so sick of seeing, like, she got noticed because she was this wonderful villain. And women so often are these wonderful villains, and it just irritates me. So personally, I had a problem with it. Well, the reverse would be true, though. If women weren't villains, you'd be upset about why can't we see women be villains? No, because we have Ursula, we have Cruella de Vil, we so if, have yeah. the evil stepmother in every freaking storytelling ever told. I had a problem with Mariette and Joy. When they combine their bodies, she asks, Joy asks Mariette, hush, I need to think. And later on, when, you know, Mariette is departing from the home, she tells Joy... I heard what was in there, your mind. There's not much going in, going on in there. And it was just such a teardown, and I just felt like it was completely unnecessary. Our last female character is the leader of the replicants who have become conscious. Mm. It was a, she was a minor character. Amazing. Why didn't we see more of her? Just a, just a minute more, you know, would have been great. Yeah, what she had on the screen was awesome. That was all she got. What purpose would she serve? I don't know. I don't have an argument back for you. Okay. But now that I've spoken about all these women's characters, mm-hmm. performances yeah. were amazing. These women were these women, mm. you know? But it really was just the scratching of the surface, it felt for me. Mm. 
There okay. wasn't anyone deeper than that. And then we have our one that's protected, the daughter of, you know, two replicants. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And although she is authentic and grounded and finds beauty in everything, uh-huh. which is, you know, sort of another female archetype, she's this creator, she's trapped. She's in a freaking bubble. Mm. She cannot experience her life. So she creates her own experiences. And that's great to overcome that challenge. But we put the main freaking woman, you know, the champion, the evidence of humanity and replicants, and we put her in a fucking box, in a bubble. I don't know. I, I think that is a character with a disability. And I think she is doing something beautiful with her disability. And I think... Something positive to see. Give in that me character. a third Blade Runner with strong females that take over the film, and I will put all of that to bed. Okay. I will let go of that. That actually raises a question. Do you think a third film would be necessary? I would love a third film. Do you think it would be necessary? Not, I think it would be because I feel like this, because they've taken this route of generations of replicants being able to be produced Mm. through each other. I feel like because they've started that, there's always this sort of theory or method that gets displayed in sci-fi movies where your first generation of a new breed is not perfect. The second one is better, more durable. And then the third or fourth is the ultimate what the goal is. Um, of a sort of hybrid. And so I would love to see a world where the replicants have completely pulled away or dismantled slavery. That's what we all want to see. We want to see slaves rise. Well, And they're always just slightly breaking away. They're never completely rid of it. So really briefly, I don't know that I want to see another Blade Runner film. I would love to see this be successful but I don't know that I would be pleased if the studio translated that into greenlighting another film. Now, there's a few spoiler points that we should bring up, and I'm curious your thoughts really briefly. We learn, eventually, that two replicants have procreated, and there may or may not be a child of the replicants that's alive and out there. And that, that child may or may not be Ryan Gosling's character, Kay. Which I, for a while, actually did believe was Kay. I was very convinced that it had to have been him. And that's where I started to think the movie was... Like, the character was a little behind the audience, and that was my going-to-be-one-on-one flaw. But we learn it's not Kay, don't we? That there's, it's actually a girl. And... She's trapped in a bubble. There's, there's like there's like a girl <laughs> and a boy, right? Or something like that? They make a clone? Their investigation and in trying to hide any trace of this child is that there is a girl and a boy and that the girl died, which mm. we know she did not. Right. But they weren't both born from the replicants, right? Only one was. Yes. Yeah, and the other... Was had memories, her memories implanted. One of her memories, yes. Right. Did you have any thoughts about that? I thought it was great. I loved seeing Ryan Gosling fall apart mm. during his competency test 
as a replicant? Oh, yeah, that's a weird test. Oh, my God, that was so obnoxious. I wanted to die. I didn't quite understand how that even worked. They're looking for any emotional cues. And you can see it. If you're paying attention to his body language in the first test he goes through where he's totally normal in a replicant sense. (laughs) And then you see the second one and his throat is just killing him because he's just emotionally torn apart after, you know, realizing that that memory is true. Mm. You know, I thought of, I I remembered a flaw. One issue anyway I had. Jared Leto's character. He's positioned as this evil guy and he kind of disappears. And his character kind of goes nowhere. It really is Love that is the primary villain. Even though Love is the subordinate of Jared Leto. Well, she's kind of the one in charge. And why do something yourself if you're creating slaves? I guess, and they can but, do it for you. Like, he doesn't go anywhere with that character, I, you know? I don't think he's meant to. Yeah, I don't know. It's not the character that's the main villain. He's not even the villain. It's a system that's in place. No, that's he's definitely a villain. Well, I mean, okay, yeah. And, like, a surface level, yeah. But the biggest problem, the biggest challenge that these replicants are facing is the system they're against. Mm. That's the problem. That's the villain. It's the system, man. <laughs> okay, come on. You know I'm not that... Well, maybe I'm a little like that. Another <laughs> quick plot point that's worth discussing is we learn that Deckard and Rachel were actually the replicants that uh, made it and gave birth. Apparently, there, after the first movie, there's this entire scheme that was concocted where Deckard would never even see his child for the purposes of saving the child's life. And he would go into hiding in uh, what appears to be a post-apocalyptic Las Vegas with some amazing statue structures. Wow, that was something. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I want to have a photo shoot like that. That That looked like fun. You mean with the statues or walking around? Just the coloring and, you know, that's the part of the film where everything is silent. Yeah. Until you hear the bees. Mm. And I want to know the significance of the bees. bees, I haven't researched that yet. Oh, the bees. But what a beautiful, I guess it's like this sort of nature sound. It's the only nature sound that you really hear. That's a good point. Yeah. There's these little, um, what do you call those little boxes that... They're full of bees and honey or whatever. Yeah, there's a bunch of those things. I will say that my favorite line in this entire film was said by the conscious replicant leader. I don't know her name. Frasier. <laughs> I say it like I'm saying Frasier. I don't think that's how you say it. <laughs> Frasier? It's, it's, it looks a little German, so it's probably Frasier. There you go. Something by, like that. I hope I'm not butchering it. Uh, played by Helm Abbas. She was great. She reminded me, actually, of that one woman in the latest season of Walking Dead that you would never want to mess with. I don't know. Maybe that is her. I don't know. Mm. But I, I felt like that was awesome. Anyway, my favorite line is from her when she says, We are our own masters which I feel is truly relevant to my life and a lot of the people I surround myself with. We're all trying to constantly remind ourselves that we're 
our own creators of our universe. And isn't it interesting that that is what the replicants, once they reach that level of consciousness, that's what they start practicing, taking control of their own lives. I thought that was beautiful and a great reminder to humanity. Like you are in control of it all. You really are. Awesome. Very good. Well, uh, did you have any final thoughts aside from that about the film? No, I think I'm complete. All right. I, I, I think I've said all I have to say about this film aside from go see it. If you've seen it, you're still listening to the spoilers, go see it again. Give this thing as much support as possible. It's definitely deserving of it. So that's our review of Blade Runner 2049. What did you think of the film? Email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. Let's move on to film faves. This is our segment that is inspired by a segment of the blog, The Gibson Review, where we count down our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic, typically marching through time. The purpose of this is to not only give you an idea of our tastes in film, but also hopefully highlight some movies that you maybe have not been exposed to. To that purpose, we do point you in the direction of where some of these are available to stream. Most films are available to rent on Amazon. However, we highlight movies that are available on Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, and HBO Now. With that, this topic is 2006, continuing our march through time. Shanna, would you like to start with your number 12 movie and, and how you came about your list? Oh boy, so you guys know, if you listened to the previous episode, that 2007 was a very difficult year for me to find films that I truly loved, and 2006 wasn't very different. Really? Uh, my favorites are, my absolute favorites are probably the, the top five, six, probably six. Like, I'd watch those films over and over again. No kidding. That's what defines my favorite. Hmm. Um, I'm just going to share films that were interesting otherwise. My number 12 is not available to stream. <laughs> it is Shut Up and Sing. It is a documentary of the live tour that the Dixie Chicks went on. Um, I cannot remember what year it is, but I know that someone else here today is going to share about that film. This was a film that my husband wanted me to watch for a very long time, and I was very resistant to it because I did not know who the Dixie Chicks were. I didn't understand. Really? However, yeah. Wow. Me, I, like, no, that did not enter my realm. But they are wonderful singers and just wonderful women. So strong. If you had said to me, you got to watch these strong, kick-ass, badass women, I'd be like, okay, cool. So I highly recommend that film. It's great to watch. I'm sure you'll hear more about it in a minute. All right. I did not have a hard time with 2006, actually. I, had, I feel like there's a lot of really good films that year. And the first film I'm going to start with is a movie that, like many movies, I haven't seen in quite a while and I have to revisit. It's called Thank You for Smoking. I believe, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken... Hey, we both have documentaries. Oh, this is not a documentary. Uh. As I was about to explain, <laughs> I believe this is Jason Reitman's first film. It is a satire on the cigarette business. It stars Aaron Eckhart as a stooge for the tobacco companies. 
he basically somehow talks people into smoking. And he has a son, and it's and that adds a little bit of a wrinkle to what he is doing and how he feels about what he's doing and what, what how that affects his son. But this is a really sly film. It's it's quite witty and quite clever and a very impressive debut by Jason Reitman, who would go on to do Juno and Up in the Air and movies that we've talked about in past episodes. So I quite enjoy this movie, and if you can find it, I recommend checking it out. My number 11 is The Last King of Scotland. This stars James McVoy, Forrest Whitaker, and even has Kerry Washington making an appearance. Oh, I believe. really? I believe I'm correct in that. I hope I am. Pretty cool for a Scandal fan. Yes, this is so great. I love that woman so much. If I had to meet her one day, I think I'd just die. So, I really enjoyed how Forrest Whitaker portrayed this character, Eddie Amin. And James McAvoy was Nicholas Garrigan, a young Scottish doctor who travels to Uganda to be the physician of President Eddie Amin. And... You know, this was the same year Blood Diamond came out. Mm-hmm. And I felt like if you compare the two, I preferred this one. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that this film's quite violent, but it felt more realistic for that sort of tumultuous time in that country within the African continent. Yeah, that's a really good good movie. I'm glad you uh, caught up with it. My number 11 is V for Vendetta, which is available on Netflix. Remember, remember the 5th of November. Which is like totally a thing in South Africa because of Guy Fawkes. No kidding. Yeah. We Americans had no clue Well, you guys have the 4th of July, we have the 5th of November. Yeah, (laughs) we had no clue what Guy Fawkes was until this movie came out. And even then, I'm pretty sure several people think it was made up for the movie. (laughs) That's so sad. Yeah. I think this is one of the few good adaptations of an Alan Moore property. I think it is more of an action film than the source novel is was, but I still really enjoy it. It's worth checking out. My number 10 is Over the Hedge. And this is a fun animation uh, with a group of animals that have just come out of hibernation and they have found that they are actually living in a smaller part of nature that's within uh, a suburban development, which is very hard for a South African to fathom. Like, I didn't think that, I think it was just an over-exaggeration, but then you come to America and you actually see it for real life, and it is kind of realistic. This is incredibly funny and very cute, and I just love it when the squirrel gets to have coffee or something, Mm -hmm crazy and everything kind of slows down and he's the star of the film totally worth watching totally appropriate for little kids very cool very cool by the way that squirrel that was steve carell you know sometimes he gets it right and sometimes he rubs me up the wrong way my number 10 is borat really and we can't talk about 2006 without talking about borat about that bathing suit I don't specifically think about the bathing suit myself, but I do think that this is a hilarious and brilliant film. It may be... Yeah, I think it is the funniest film of that year, even though it's my 10th favorite. 
It's not a movie that I come back to very often, but the, the just the conception of the film was absolutely brilliant and what he got away with and how he, he was able to expose so much about our country was was fantastic and in a time when it was so necessary. Although, good golly, Miss Molly, imagine if Barat had come out these days. Oh man, what he would what he would reveal about us would be quite unsettling, I'm sure. Yeah, I think Barat's a, a brilliant film as well as a hilarious film. Yeah, that could probably have done without the naked wrestling, but otherwise Naked. You know, have you not seen this film? Uh, you know, I saw that bathing suit and I was like, that film is not for me. <gasps> oh my gosh, you have underestimated this film by so much. You, we, we need to check this out. And I recommend you check it out as well if you can find it. My number nine is Children of Men. This is a apocalyptic film starring Julianne Moore, Michael Caine, Owen Wilson... Clive Owen, excuse me. That's a completely different <laughs> That's movie. That's so bad. That would just be so different. <laughs> Someone needs to do a skit on that. It fe- it's just you feel this incredible hopelessness in this film. There has been infertility for two decades, so it really does feel like the end of humanity is coming. And I highly recommend this film for any apocalyptic dystopian lovers out there. My number nine film is The Namesake. Possibly my favorite film by Mira Nair, and also pretty sure was the first film by Mira Nair I ever saw. I believe I saw it not long after 2006. This stars an Indian American who is definitely growing up and moving away from his family's heritage and, you know, what his. Uh, how, how his parents' culture is, and thereby also failing to understand and recognize the sacrifices his parents have made for him and his uh, sister to have the lives that they have. This is a beautiful film. It is just so touching and sometimes heartbreaking. And Zach Penn, who previously was known for Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle, <laughs> really impresses in this film. He really steps it up here. I, I think this is a great underseen film. And you should definitely hunt it down. It is worthwhile. My number eight is The Queen, and it is available for streaming on Netflix. And I have recently spoken about this film, but I will let you know, for those who didn't hear that episode, it stars Helen Mirren, which she's just a wonderful woman of our time. She did a great Super Bowl commercial last year. Okay. <laughs> I'm just going to mention that because I'm a big fan. If you were ever wondering what it was like for her the Queen of England, when Princess Diana died, that's when this film is set, mm. uh, you should go and check it out and gain an understanding through that film. That was a recent discovery of yours, wasn't it? Uh, you know, I had wanted to watch it for a very long time and I finally got to it a couple months ago. Very good. I'm glad you did. I'm glad that it ended up on this list for you. My number eight is Crank. Wait, wait, Crank? Yes. I did miss a film. That was a great film. How unique. Yes. Starring Jason Statham. He's so great. As a guy 
who's got to keep his heart going by adrenaline. like ad- through adrenaline. So he has to make sure no matter what he's doing, <laughs> he's so keeping his heart pumping like crazy. <laughs> this, is, this is a batshit movie that is so fun and awesome and hilarious. The second film, High Voltage, does go a little bit too far with it. It's not as good. But this is just a blast. I mean, this is literally, he's a video game character, right? Literally a video game character. Maybe, up until recently, the best video game movie, even though it's not based on a video game. I mean, it's a first-person film, right? Down to, like, doesn't he fall from a helicopter or something ridiculous? It's something incredibly stupid, and he would have ended up dead. Right, and actually even the second movie picks up immediately... After the, the first film, as though he gained a new life or something. Anyway, this is the first Jason Statham film I really liked. This would be years before he would join the Fast and Furious franchise. Man, this film is a blast. If you can find it, you will enjoy yourself, for sure. I think I sat through that entire film with my jaw open. And Amy Smart's in it, and, you know, she's got a really shitty career, but I think, like, this movie, like, she's a highlight in it, and it's a highlight in her career, for reals. If you can find Crank, just kick back and enjoy yourself. My number seven is The Namesake. It is unfortunately not available to stream, but great if you can find it. I feel like... Because they're showing a depiction of a family who's left their homeland to come to America for a particular life for the future of their family and children to come. And it shows what happens when you have children in a different country. There is going to be some heritage disrespect unintentionally, like what we were saying earlier about the big sick. That's kind of what happens with a first generation uh, or second generation And they just did a very sensitive, very authentic storytelling of that. Awesome. My number seven is the only other film on my list, apparently, that is available to stream. It is District 13, the French action film that is on Hulu. This film was in festivals in 2005, finally hit theaters in the United States in 2006, this film is where essentially where parkour all came from. If you haven't seen this film, your jaw will drop at the practical uh, stunts that are, that are accomplished in this film. The two leads are just incredible. What they do in this film is so cool. I mean, this, this movie is not necessarily one you go to for characters or a really rich plot line you you're going for the stunts and the action and it definitely has that in spades i i've recommended this film to several of my friends and it's one of those movies that i try to get around to or show to somebody every couple years and now you can check it out on hulu enjoy and thank me later my number six is available on netflix it is inside man and that stars Denzel Washington, Clive Owen, Jodie Foster, and even Christopher Plummer makes an appearance. Uh, this looks like it was a fairly decent year for Clive Owen. I really liked mm. him in this year. 
This is a film about a detective, a bank robber, and a broker all coming together um, in a very interesting way. I loved how this film was shot. It was very smart and quite enjoyable. There's very funny moments, even though there's like this hostage situation happening in a bank. I highly recommend it. Go check it out on Netflix. So my number six is my only animation pick on the list. This is a year of cars. And I think Monster House, maybe. It's not a great year for animation. But one film stood out above all others that I quite enjoyed and I thought was hilarious. And that is Over the Hedge, based on a comic strip. Really? Yeah, absolutely. So it stars Bruce Willis as a raccoon and... And who doesn't love hearing Bruce Willis? <laughs> who plays the turtle in the movie, also? Uh, I don't know, someone grounded. Someone <laughs> grounded. <laughs> Has a very grounding voice. Whereas, I don't know, maybe it's just conditioning, but I always think that Bruce Willis has Gary Shanling. Ah, yes. Oh, the go. poor departed Gary Shanling plays the turtle who's trying to talk down the raccoon all the time. The raccoon... Is always scheming and trying to, to figure out how to improve their situation. This film, it's been a while since I've seen it, but it is, I think it's a blast. I think it's hilarious. Yeah, Hammy, the squirrel, is a highlight for sure, a scene stealer. But what a cast. You have Wanda Sykes, William Shatner, Nick Nolte, Thomas Hayden Church, Allison Janney, Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara... You even have Avril Lavigne. Yeah, who While I, she was kind of at the height of her music yeah, career, I think. If you call it music. I'm not a huge fan of Avril Lavigne, but she's fine in this movie. It's, it's a fun film, man. I, I, I definitely think it's probably the better film of all the animated films that came out that year. It's my number six. My number five is available to stream on Prime. It is The Holiday, and it's a Christmas film, and it's a Nancy Myers film, and it's my favorite, I think, Nancy Myers film. It is two stories happening. You have the one story with Cameron Diaz, based in California, and you have Kate Winslet in England, and they are both trying to overcome a challenge in their love life and break through that challenge in... The form of swapping houses for the holiday season. And even Jack Black is in this, and I love him in this. He's my favorite. I highly recommend this film for the Christmas season. I know Jeff has certain feelings about it. We have spoken about this film before. Didn't you recently slam Nancy Myers movies for the women not being... slam women. (laughs) For the women not being very good? I like these two women. Okay, they're the exception. (laughs) Thank you very much. Bye. Do you feel like her female characters could be stronger? Mm. But I did like this particular problem that all women do go through Mm. some sort of love challenge that they have to overcome. Very good. My number five is Mission Impossible 3. J.J. Abrams put life back into this franchise, and it has stayed alive quite strongly since... (laughs) Flair, yeah. (laughs) Lens Flair. Well, and he starts it all off by killing off Felicity. I mean, that was a big deal back then. No, this this film, even though I, I feel like Philip Seymour Hoffman is ultimately kind of wasted as the villain, I, I don't think he's nearly as good as, oh, as some people claim he was. 
this film is otherwise uh, just great. I think the franchise gets even better as it goes along, but this was a great adrenaline injection into a franchise that was just about to die thanks to John Woo's Mission Impossible 2 four years earlier. So that's one thing that J.J. Abrams is great at with this franchise, Star Trek and Star Wars. He's just like reignited a franchise after franchise after franchise. And this is, uh, He's I think a good the, igniter. Yeah, this is the first uh, example of him doing that. My number four is V for Vendetta. I had just started art school when this movie came out and we were learning about propaganda imagery and this film had of course fantastic examples of that and it was shot in a way that made me really take notice of imagery in film and I really loved Natalie Portman. I used to not be a fan and when I saw her in this I thought my god you're fantastic and that is available to stream on Netflix. Very cool. My number four film in a year chock full of pretty darn good documentaries is Shut Up and Seen, starring the Dixie Chicks. Now, for those who don't remember, way back in 2003 when George W. Bush was sending us off to war to look for weapons of mass destruction that he swore Iraq was harboring to support Al-Qaeda and those responsible for 9-11. Dixie Chicks were, Natalie Maines and the Dixie Chicks, were one of many people who kind of saw through that bullshit and, and said publicly they're embarrassed that the president is from Texas. Well, that little remark cost them essentially their entire relationship to country music that still hasn't really repaired all these fans turned coat and started burning and destroying their albums now what this documentary does is it takes a look at that incident and reflects upon our country and our supposed love of freedom of speech and how one person saying something uh, that is really dismissing and questioning the status quo and those in charge, how people can suddenly re, um, uh, fail to support one person's freedom of speech. And, and I think that's something that is quite relevant today. We're seeing it uh, quite a bit with uh, the African-American community and, and those who are in a position to be able to say something in front and center stage of the American public. We are failing to support those people for speaking out and failing to listen to those people who are speaking out. And I think this, this documentary is very timely and very uh, relevant today and worth checking out if you can find it. It is a great documentary about, the, about protecting the freedom of speech and how... S- One group of people were victimized and threatened for exercising their freedom of speech. That is Dixie Chicks' uh, Shut Up and Sing. My number three for the year of 2006 is The Secret, and it's available on Netflix to stream, and I 
Was that a theatrically released movie? What do, what do you mean? Like all these other movies. Was that released in the theater? I don't believe so. I think it was kind of naturally really Go and do some research and find out. Cheater, cheater, pumpkin eater. It says it's a 2006 film. Mm. Go ahead. This film is all about staying on track. <laughs> As you should do. It's a sort lady. of new thought. They call it new thought. Um, it's all about the law of attraction. If you were ever curious about what the law of attraction is, it simply means, uh, even though it's a complex thing. It's a secret. And the reason it's a favorite is because it demonstrates the law of attraction, gratitude, and receiving and controlling the life that you wish to create via positive thought as opposed to negative and how you can navigate that way of living. And it's totally changed my life. I feel like I have more control of who I am by choosing how to feel rather than just feeling it and running away like a freak train. <laughs> That's also called choice theory. My third favorite film of 2006 is Children of Men. Which I, I thought you were going to say corn, even though I knew that it's Children of Men. You're a dork. This is probably the second greatest film of the year. I don't think it got recognized uh, as such, although I've, I do feel like the greatest film of 2006 was United 93, and I, I definitely don't think that got the, uh, the appreciation that it deserved. But... Children of Men is a really great dystopian future. It is a film that's all about hope. Uh, it's a film that's all about the future of humanity. I, I think I saw it again last year and the first time in years, and it's really fascinating. Uh, first of all, to see that you know Clive Owen was a guy who really seemed to be an it guy at that time, and you know, turns out you don't see him very often now. you see him at all? He was in Valerian, and that's pretty much it. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, the, oh, I missed him. Yeah, you didn't really. So, if I may, he, he's definitely kind of disappeared. But he's really good in this film, and it might be his best performance, actually. There's, But this, this film, just on a filmmaking perspective, is spectacular. There are amazing long takes in the film. I think there's two or three in particular that are just remarkable. There's a birthing scene that's remarkable. There's a battle scene that is just spectacularly choreographed. I mean, there's a lot of craftsmanship in this film, and I don't think it got nominated for Best Picture, but this is the kind of film that sh that is supposed to be recognized um, and often typically is recognized for its achievements in film. I just, I just really have a, a great appreciation for this. I think it's one of the best sci-fi films of the last decade. And if for whatever reason you haven't exposed yourself to this film, you really need to. My number two is Devil Wears Prada. It is not available to stream. This is a <laughs> comedy starring Anne Hathaway, Meryl Streep, and Emily Blunt. Emily Blunt and Meryl Streep were nominated by different academies for their roles in this film, but Emily Blunt especially for her supporting actress role. This film is about Anne Hathaway's character trying to be taken seriously as a writer-journalist 
and gets an internship for Meryl Streep's character, a reference to Anna Wintour of Vogue. She believes once she gets through this, she can get whatever company she wants to work for afterwards. She's kind of got this whole impress the beast, get the great job, even if you lose your family friend's lover. But really, it's Emily Blunt who steals the show for me. Really? Her line, <laughs> she's amazing. Mm. She's just, she's hilarious. She's in her own world of fashion. And, you know, sometimes you get that. And, and Hathaway is kind of this woman who comes into this realm and is observing what's going on. And fashion really is its own monster. Beautiful sometimes. Yeah, I don't want to carry on too much about this movie, but you're forgetting about Stanley Tucci also. Oh, I mean, whatever he touches, it's gold. Yeah. Okay, so my second favorite film of 2006 is Little Miss Sunshine, which has a great cast. It's by the director and pair of Dayton and Ferris, who actually directed this year's Battle of the Sexes. Uh, I think this is a better film, starring Steve Carell, uh, Greg Kinnear, Paul Dano, a very young Paul Dano role, Abigail Breslin, this is her breakout role, and Tony Collette, this is a great dysfunctional family. Alan Arkin also plays the uh, grandfather role. There's a lot of layers to this to, with each character, especially with the patriarch, played by Greg Kinnear, and how he affects his children, and how, or how he what he fails to do for his children. Steve Carell is great in it. The score, by the way, by the band Devochka. I just love that score. I, I sometimes have the piece come up on Pandora, and I just have to listen. I can't skip it. Yeah, I love this film. I, and I, I think the, uh, the third act pageant scene is outrageous fun. So if you haven't seen that, check it out. Little Miss Sunshine. My number one and ultimate favorite film of this year in 2006 is Pan's Labyrinth, which is available to stream on Prime, but is completely worth the purchase. This is a film directed by Guillermo del Toro. It's set in Spain in 1944 during the Spanish Civil War. And although there is a war happening alongside the main story, which is a fairy tale and mythology, I'm able to get through it just fine. I'm sensitive to war films, but it's not the main part. It is such a beautifully composed film in every sense. The cinematography, the set design, the costuming, the special effects, practical and digital. Character development, and I wish I had thought of this a long time ago, but the main character, Ophelia, is a great strong female character and I wish she had entered my list earlier in an earlier episode she believes in herself when others doubt her she stays true to herself she seems to be in the eight to ten year old age range if you want a film you can peel like an onion for its richness this is the film for you also, I got it in Criterion form from Jeff as a gift, and it has amazing features on how long and involved the process was in developing this story into a film by Guillermo. Very good. Yeah, that was one of the few films I would describe as both beautiful and ugly. A masterpiece. Perfect. Mm. 
My favorite film of 2006, however, is Casino Royale, the James Bond film directed by uh, Martin Campbell. Maybe his last great action film. The first with Daniel Craig. This was essentially they were uh, rebooting the James Bond franchise, going back to the early days of Bond, and we basically get a three three movie arc of Bond becoming the Bond that we have known all these years. This film is just amazing. It's got a great foot chase. That's uh, actually a parkour foot chase. Interestingly enough, it's, it's got some great set pieces, amazing action, a great, of course, a great score. Great tailoring. I think the only thing that's not great about it is, unfortunately, Chris Cornell's song. It's not one of the best Bond uh. themes, but just almost everything else about the film is spectacular. And yeah, it's, it's easily one of my five most favorite James Bond films. And it is my favorite film of 2006. What is your favorite film of 2006? Email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. That'll about do it for us in this episode of The Movie Lovers. Shannon, where can people find more of your work on the internet? You can find me at my website and any social media channels that you want, you'll find over there. It is www.shannapaxton.com. That's S-H-A-N-N-A-P-A-X-T-O-N. And you'll find me at thegibsonreview.com, where you'll find past episodes, past lists, past reviews, all sorts of things. Go to Facebook, The Gibson Review. You'll find third-party links, uh, mini-reviews, and all sorts of things there. And also go to Flickchart, the Gibson 99. You'll find all 3,000 films that I have seen and get an idea of my movie tastes and how they align with yours as well. I think that's about it. Of course, you can always email at the email address that I mentioned before. Give us your thoughts about the episodes, the Gibson Review at gmail.com. Our next episode. We do not know yet what our next episode will be, but it looks like it will be... Hitting iTunes on Halloween, so I'm not sure if we'll be doing a Halloween episode. Let's review Hocus Pocus. Yeah, no, (laughs) I do not think I could handle that. I don't know if we will be doing a main review or what, but keep your eyes peeled on the show notes, as well as I'll I'll put a link on the show notes to the original Film Faves post of 2006 too so you can compare that uh looking ahead i'm not sure that we're going to be too excited about what's opening maybe if we're lucky one of the uh, what do you call limited release movies will go wide maybe we'll have a review of professor marston and the wonder woman it's going to be a surprise it seems maybe goodbye christopher robin We'll see what happens. Uh, keep keep your eyes peeled on the Facebook page or the show notes of this episode on iTunes or the main blog. For now, though, this is Jeff and Shanna telling you to keep loving the movies. Until next time. Bye-bye.